0: This is the Bill Kelly Show Podcast. Some good news. Uh, Things are changing in downtown Hamilton. There was a time not too many years ago when the core was a bore, uh, especially down around Gore Park. Uh, That's about as alliterative as I can get about this, but things have changed considerably. We know about the Leuna construction and the project and the commitment they've made to one particular property. Now we find out. That somebody has bought another one of the historic buildings down there in the Gore. Joining us to talk about this is Jason Farr, he's the counselor for Ward Two in downtown Hamilton, and always a guest, uh, welcome guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Jay, how are you doing today?
1: I'm great. You're right. The core was a bore, but more and more we see uh, investors explore the wonderful
0: anyway, I'm worse
1: than you at the alliteration, but uh it's a bore it's
0: it's a, it's uh, a bore a- no more. Okay, now let's <laughs> let's put an end to this right now. Uh what's what's going on down there?
1: Uh, just a great story this morning. I always enjoy Mark McNeil's, uh, approach to journalism and, uh, he, uh, reached out to me yesterday afternoon for comment, but I couldn't, uh, keep up with, uh, neither, uh, he and his spectator or Mr. Birmingham who's made an incredible investment and, uh, uh, not only in the old Chester's building, but the uh, building next door, it looks like he's interested in purchasing as well. So, uh, all for, uh, Repurposing, adaptive reuse, and uh, maintaining the wonderful uh, historic features that are facing that uh, incredible investment by council.
0: I just try to put this in context, and uh, you and I have had some discussions, uh, sometimes heated, uh, about some of the other developments or non-developments that have gone on down there, and the 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 properties just down the street from them. uh, The old, well, the Wilson Blanchard project that uh, was very contentious, actually, for a couple of years. And and the question was being asked at that time, Jay, hey, is anything going on down there? I mean, people seem to want to buy this stuff and sit on it, and they didn't know what they want to do. Why all of a sudden all of this activity and all this interest?
1: Well, the market for certain. I mean, there's obviously opportunities for uh, savvy business people and investors uh, alike to uh, you know repurpose buildings because they're getting higher rents, whether it's for the commercial ground floor, residential above, even office use. Which uh, may, in fact, be the case in in the Birmingham properties, but uh, we shall see as we move this along. And yeah, you mentioned it. I mean, you were first out of the gates, and uh, in fact, both of you shared both you and I shared that seat on the roller coaster ride that was eighteen to twenty eight core, and uh, certainly that's uh, very similar to what Mr. Birmingham is doing now, just to block up with. Uh, the uh, Wilson Blanchard uh, folks, uh, and uh, that that particular development, as a matter of fact, Bill, I figured you'd want an update since we've been talking about it for yeah, five plus yeah. Years now. Uh, they're they're uh, just about through with their reengineering on the new concept that contemplates the uh, the uh, saving of all the uh, facades and the and the uh, 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 historical properties there, adding a floor or two um, um, on top of some of the buildings, and um, and then it's. Uh, a site plan approval. So we're just a few months away, I would assume, uh, from uh, seeing that one, you know, and literally uh, with the hoarding that's up there now, we're protecting the public from potential bricks falling down, but then they'll be hoarding up for construction purposes in, in short order. And this year, uh, I just spoke with the, uh, the proponents of that one too. So incredible things. And to answer your question, quite obviously, people are seeing there's incredible opportunities and in value and there's a, a large market, interested in making the investment, particularly in downtown Hamilton.
0: There's been an interesting transition that has occurred over the years. And for those who may be relatively new to the city, and I know that's a lot of people these days, and that's a good news story in and of itself. But, I mean, we went through a downtown, uh, well, kind of a compression, I guess, like a lot of inner cities did. Toronto even went through this. Obviously, it was a grander scale uh, where a lot of the core businesses, the places that we'd come to expect or maybe that our parents used to shop at, uh, started going out of business. And, and there was a bit of a rejuvenation in the 80s, but it was for all the wrong reasons. I mean, we got bingo halls and, and, and money lenders and things like that instead of actual you know, commercial businesses. Who's, who's kicking the tires now, Jay? Who's looking at this place? Because I'm getting the sense that the, 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 the Leunas and, and, and the, the Birminghams and others that are down there now have got a bigger picture.
1: Absolutely, and and who's kicking the tires? We're still seeing a good uh, number of local, uh, well-known investors, developers making investments, whether for purposes such as what Birmingham, who's more or less a local guy. I mean, uh, and uh, the country, family's family's been live. around
0: here for a long time.
1: Absolutely, four generations with Birmingham Steel, but the um, uh, there are other players coming from parts unknown or, or Toronto investors. Uh, we have uh, a couple of young fellows uh, working with the uh, Corktown neighborhood association now on a, a big project on John street South that uh, sees a uh, formal consultation in about a month. And uh, you know, investments, I would suggest probably once every week or two weeks, somebody, you know, knocks on the door of the Ward Two office and I orchestrate or facilitate a facilitated meeting of uh, both staff and that uh, potential investor or investor and we talk about uh, the potential for whatever parcel or parcels of projects. So there, there's uh, folks from all, all corners that are, are, are interested. In, and what I'm really buoyed by is that there's still a lot of local interest because when you consider the attention people like yourself give and the media give uh, in, um, you know, uh, portraying what is not the market for bingo halls and payday loans that was 20 years ago or 10 years ago even – uh, but that there are incredible opportunities. If you live locally, you're hearing this all the time because we're we're sharing that good news all of the time, and uh, people are putting their money where their mouth is and making the investments, and it's paying off. We're already seeing it pay off in in, in, in big ways for, for, for Ward 2 and for downtown.
0: I, I know I, I hesitate to actually point to one project and say, well, that was the catalyst, because you're right, there's, there's been a changing mindset but, but the one I think that really kind of got things going was the Connaught Project, and and that Absolutely. was something that had been kicked around for the longest time. And a lot of folks bought the building and had all sorts of great plans for it, and nothing it really happened. And then the splotchy uh, Valerie combination came along, and they said, no, we're going to make this happen. And, and I remember having a talk with Rudy and said, well, good luck with that. Uh, and they did. I mean, they made it happen. I don't know how they did it, but they got the financing, they got the thing going, it's up and running, I mean, it's selling, and and that, I think, caused a lot of people to look and say, hey, wait a second here, this can happen.
1: Yeah, last I checked in, Phase 2, which is an adaptive reuse, it has a lot of heritage elements. Uh, the first two phases is a near sellout. I spoke with uh, Rudy Spalacci uh, just a few weeks ago on that, and, uh, you know, they have site plan approval for all five phases. So, Facing Maine. Uh, more LRT inspired the development uh, coming and receiving that site plan for all five phases was a brilliant move by both Valerie and Spalachy because it means they can just keep maintaining that momentum on that particular site and as it relates to Gore in recent times because you got to give a shout out to the good people who renovated that right house maybe 30 40 years ago 30 years ago um, uh, who, who maybe started an inspirational movement then but it didn't really catch on but uh, in recent times, for certain, the uh, Royal Knot Project has spurred a lot of interest, at the very least in the immediate area, in the Gore Park area, where obviously we're talking about the focal point of our city.
0: The other element to this that people may not be aware is that the city is is a player in this uh, not just with these developers but uh, and and that has a lot to do with i think the, the gore revitalization that you've embarked upon and that's going in phases but that's why i think the the Knot project was so important because the, uh, the the long-term goal is to actually recreate what happened uh, back in Hamilton back in the 1930s and 40s where the gore park actually extended down beyond the Cannot hotel and and you're planning on doing that sort of thing again
1: well, I, I'll always take the opportunity to give uh, credit where credit is due. And, you know, I was uh, really impressed that, uh, you know, you know, your Bob Morrow history. And in the last few weeks, as we paid tribute on CHML to a wonderful politician and a great Hamilton citizen and someone who lived in the core and, you know, was ahead of his time when, when he was creating investment programs that are now rolling out today. Um, you know, th- there are people that are taking advantage of what the city has uh, produced and heritage grants and loans are probably the most robust than any Ontario city, and a lot of people don't know that. So there, there are folks actively uh, uh, taking advantage of those, you know, wonderful opportunities with respect to restoration and adaptive reuse. We, we in my time, have amended and made them even better. Instead of you know per deed, we went per address, as it was for the Gore case and. Our attempts through that roller coaster ride to, to salvage as much as we could, and uh, you know, and then, then of course there's the BIA incentives, and then there's the community improvement plans, and and while I know there's the conversation now with my colleagues and even some members and activists in the community that think it's time to start thinking about adjusting those incentives, even eliminating some of those incentives because there's such a robust market right now. Uh, that's something that we're we are in in the process of reviewing and something council will consider, but. To answer your question, Bill, yeah, absolutely. We're we're seeing, uh, you know, not only with the the investments that we offer, but a multi-million dollar restoration of, of the Gore itself, the park itself. That was a major and important uh, step for uh, council to make that investment. We focused on that last term of council. We've near completed it now, saving except for the smaller piece in front of the Royal Canaan As we wait and partner with the Royal Canad on that piece. And, and, you know, there there's clearly value to that, and Mr. Birmingham mentions that today in his article with Mark.
0: Yeah, and, and I know that's going to be happening. We had those discussions with our good friend Brian Henley, Hamilton historian, uh, when I was down there doing the Remembrance Day broadcast a few months ago, of course, right down at the Gore, and about the long-term plan for that. But, but what about the spillover things? Because, I mean, I want to talk about the successes, but there are some hiccups along the way. Uh, one of them, of course, is the condo project across from the YMCA on James Street. Uh, and Jackson that, uh, that uh, well, we, we all know that that didn't work the way it was supposed to. Uh, is there a plan B there? I mean, because there are other projects right now that are, are waiting for, for somebody like the people we've just talked about to come in and say, yeah, I can make this right. Well, I, I
1: can't uh, offer any names or, or, or any great detail, but I'll tell you, when that project went into re- receivership, in some ways, it probably was the best news we could possibly have because, as much as we expediated that project, and and to some consternation, because of the uh, you know some would argue partial demolition isn't the name for it, most of or what these two thirds of that uh, former James Baptist Church went down. Uh, we've, we we went through that approval process in record time. We had record uh, parking ratios attached to it. Staff went above and beyond, and then we sat in limbo for two years and waited for this. Uh, one individual, Stanton Developments, actually, to make the investment and it never happened and then they go into receivership. Well, that means it's back on the market. And what I can tell you, Bill, is three, maybe four interested and very real, uh, tangible interest has been shared with me personally. And that doesn't mean our own uh, economic development and urban renewal department, Judy Lamb, leads that one, hasn't heard from more. And certainly, uh, I would suggest at least three of the four are serious contenders and very interested in it and i've I've, at the very least have helped them uh reach out to the uh, parties in toronto that are are uh, you know that's on the market they're selling that property so i expect we'll hear something soon can't put a date on it but i can tell you there's interest in those situations and you're right i mean i wish every development uh went off without a hitch uh that that i didn't need to facilitate these meetings that we didn't uh, that we could all sing Kumbaya every time somebody comes by with a great investment, but the reality is, when you're talking about multi millions of dollars and uh, uh, you know an, a, and a multitude of interested parties, every now and again we're going to, as you say, uh, have a hiccup or two.
0: Do you still have housing stock, Are there still buildings there that are available? If the phone rings after we have this conversation,
1: I'm. What do you mean, housing stock? As,
0: as, I, I'm not, not housing, but I mean commercial stock. In other words, if uh, somebody else says, "Hey, I want to get in on this," I want to buy. I, I want to get in on the gore. Are, are there properties that are available there?
1: Oh, I would say so. I mean, I, I know of a fellow who owns three properties who's been humming and hawing for a while, and you know, maybe that particular fellow, let's call him Joe, that's his first name. I won't share his last name because he doesn't have it on the market. But you know, there was an interesting element to Mark's piece, and that's why I said I enjoyed the story for a whole lot of reasons this morning. Uh, and I heard from Derek Doyle, uh, Ambitious Realty, who yep. also talked, talked about, you know, there there are a number of properties where people are still of the mindset. They're speculating like it's 1992. And all you got to do is reach out to them and say, I don't see a for sale sign, but if you're a willing seller, I'm a willing buyer. And so there are, I, th- I would suggest, uh, plenty of opportunities like that. Those opportunities are on the decline as the market obviously sees an incredible uptick. So, and I'm really happy to report that you know, it's still sky's the limit, and there's still wonderful things happening, and frankly, it's hard to keep up as a counselor.
0: Oh, I know, but the wonderful thing about this, and we talked about some of the locals, uh, with Leuna and the Mancinellis, and and, and of course, the of uh, Val- valerie uh, project, and of course, Wilson and Blanchard are doing their things, but the fact that you've got outside investors that are looking at downtown, and especially in the Gore area right now, has to be encouraging.
1: Very encouraging, and you know, very knowledgeable people, and, and you know, I'll ask them, I, I was on a over the christmas holiday on a on a little uh suv tour of the core and sort of pointed out to one of these Toronto fellas uh you know different parking lots that may be opportunities different parcels and properties he he pointed out some properties that he's already purchased others that he's interested in purchasing and negotiations were underway it was a wonderful you know we had a couple of tim hortons copies and just sort of drove around it was a winter break we had all kinds of time to do so and uh, I was I was uh, very impressed in that, that the knowledge of the Toronto investor in the Hamilton market. Number one, they, they see the, the, the greater uh, uh, transportation uh, uh, opportunities moving forward. The very real uh, connections that are coming with the Move Ontario plan. They they understand the the uh, value in investing in your transit corridors and the connectivity to the GTHA and all around. Uh, but they also know that uh, they're getting priced out of Toronto. Frankly, I mean, they could do projects, and they could do one project in Toronto, or they could do three or four in Hamilton. And they and they're they're savvy that way, and and they're they're thinking not just short term, but medium term, long term in a lot of these investments. And uh, they know our market well. And I, and kudos again and credit to Glenn Norton and now Judy Lamb from Urban Renewal, who have uh, more than done their part in reaching out to the the bigger markets and talking about the opportunities here.
0: Downtown Council Jason Farr, Jay, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you. You betcha. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML.
0: There are winners and losers, and in the political game uh, arena, that is, uh, things are not going well for Patrick Brown over the last couple of months. Boy, there's an understatement. Uh, Brown uh, resigned. At least he doesn't think he did, but everyone else seems to be under the impression that he resigned. Uh, amid sexual allegations about uh, misconduct. Uh, then, of course, there have been allegations uh, by a couple of MPPs, including Randy Hillier, about financial misrepresentation uh, during the nomination process in a number of writings. So it's getting uglier and uglier. And among all of these mountain, this mountain of, 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 of conflict that seems to be going on with the party right now, they're trying to run a leadership uh, race, and uh, at the last minute, Patrick Brown re-entered the race and tried to get his old job back. Well, today, we're told, uh, the conservative party, the progressive conservative party, will make a determination as to whether or not Brown is even eligible to win to run. Well, whether or not he's going to win is something altogether different. Joining us to talk about this, and boy, we need some clarity on this, is Christo Avela, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history of the University of Toronto, Crystal, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. This is bizarre. I mean, that's that's maybe the best way to encapsulate everything that's gone on in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the, just when you think you're getting some handle on exactly what's going on, we get a different twist. It's uh, it's very very difficult and very unusual for Ontario politics.
2: Yeah, certainly. I normally, you know, when I'm, when I do media calls, you know, you say, well, you you want to talk about the. The Joe Smith story, and I know exactly what we're talking about because it's in the news. And, you know, when I get a call about Patrick Brown, I have to think, well, is it just the normal Patrick Brown stuff we've heard over the last couple of weeks, or is there a new thing? And you have to kind of do your research, and you're right, everything's changing very quickly. You know, there was the resignation, there was the, the accusation, and then he was staying, and then he went, and then, you know, we thought we would be past Patrick Brown, but then he's back in, and yeah, it's just... You know, any one of these things is pretty noteworthy, but altogether, you're right, I I've never really seen anything like it.
0: Well, there was the resignation. Uh, at least we thought we saw the resignation. And then, of course, we saw the interviews last week that aired on Global TV where he said, uh, I didn't really resign. I, I, you know, somebody else wrote that and they submitted it and they didn't have my permission. Uh, and he said, maybe I'm still the leader. And, and that caused more speculation. Then the very next day, there he goes registering. Uh, to run for the leadership. So I, I don't know if he talked to somebody or he got lawyered up and the, they they said you can't really do that. So he's trying to go through the process again. Before I get into what's going to happen or may not happen with Brown himself, what's this doing to the leadership race itself? I mean, I, I got to think that there are some people in the caucus that still support Patrick Brown-Cristo, but uh, there's clearly a number of other people right now that wish this guy would just go away.
2: Yeah, you know, I think, you know, the latter is probably the more common opinion. Patrick Brown still has significant support. You know, it's not a majority or anything, but he has support from that caucus, I I would think, from a few people. But he also has a lot of support from, you know, uh, PC Ontario PC members. Uh, And, you know, those people are are still around. Some of them are still vocal in the fact that they feel that this has been a smear job. But, you know, I think that the Conservative Party in Ontario, the Progressive Conservative Party, um, kind of felt they got away with this one. You know, Patrick Brown you know, uh, got these accusations, he resigned, and then the polls since then have shown them in a strong position, some cases stronger than they were with Patrick Brown as leader. And all of a sudden now they have a leadership race in which they can sign up more people and raise more money, and potentially find a newer leader that's maybe more uh, you know, appealing to the electorate, and Patrick Brown was going to disappear, but with him back in the race, now the allegations will continue to linger. And now there's the potential that this will spread to other people in the party who knew what Patrick Brown knew and didn't know. And did they do nothing about it? You know, are there kind of guilt by association? Do other men or women in the Conservative Party face allegations like Brown because now Brown maybe has the motivation to to kind of spread the, the, the scandal? Um, who knows? But it definitely creates the volatility. And it seems like, you know, again, some polls had them, you know, almost at 50%. Um, that you know, this is not what they need right now.
0: And it just seems that every time Brown tries to get back up on the horse, uh, somebody else is trying to knock him down. And usually, it's somebody within his own party. Uh, the, the most recent one, of course, being Randy Hillier, who uh, is is now asking the province's integrity commission to do investigate Brown uh, for what he called spending irregularities and maybe taking free trips. And and then there's this uh, this supposed deal or non deal, depending on who you want to believe. Uh, with this guy that wanted to be a a candidate in in the Brampton area and uh the possibility of a payment for that and and on and on it goes, of course brown is denying all of this stuff, but it's out there and it's it really muddies the waters
2: yeah um yes i i think in, in that sense um you know he's people don't want him running again, like as we've we've said it creates this situation in which um you know, the scandal keeps in light. You know, people kind of thought they moved past Patrick Brown. They had kind of buried him. And now when he's trying to come back, I think there's extra motivation for people in the party to kind of keep bringing these things up. And if they can find other issues, whether it's on, you know, kind of more traditional political integrity issues around spending and and, and using your power appropriately, those kind of things can be used to try to, like, keep Patrick Brown down. Because I think there's a, I think there's a kind of consensus that, you know, if he gets momentum again, if he's able to kind of get momentum, he might well be able to galvanize support. But if before he can really start his campaign, there's questions about, you know, the allegations that exist, but also new allegations around bribery or what have you, and that could kind of knock him out for good.
0: It just seems as as if this is almost an orchestrated uh, attempt to, to try to get him down and out. I mean, there were the allegations, and and we all know about that controversy, uh, and then he fought back. And just around the time of the global TV interviews, uh, he seemed to be rejuvenated. I, I, he obviously had some advisors who were coaching him on what to do next, uh, about, telling his side of the story and about trying to reclaim his position within the party. And uh, there, he seems to be invigorated. Yet every time, as he said, he tries to do something about this, uh, comes another allegation about wrongdoing. And I, it makes you wonder whether or not these people like Hillier and, and Fidelity and others were sitting on all this information for the longest time, thinking, well, we better not use it uh, and, until we found an opportunity for it, or if this was a a well-planned coup to get rid of him before the the election coming up.
2: You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I wouldn't want to say that, you know, without speculating that this was a coup or or anything of that sort. I certainly think that, you know, there's a lot of things in politics and, you know, when you're in positions of power, you know, there's always these opportunities uh, to to kind of hit these pitfalls. And, uh, you know, I don't think the the initial allegations were part of that. But I think all of these edge cases, you know, where politicians do things and and of all kind of stripes – you know, can be used against you when it becomes convenient to do so. And I think in a sense, while I don't think it was necessarily a coup for the initial Patrick Brown resignation, I definitely do agree that there's definitely a a sense that there's a kind of unification in the goal of not having him have a credible campaign. And if that means, you know, bringing up edge case allegations or, or things that maybe were somewhat flying under the radar and putting them into the public limelight, I think that's part of the strategy because, again, uh, you know, he's he, he's he been the leader before, and he has support. Um, and, you know, there's a, I, I, get, I get the sense that if he gets momentum again and is able to kind of restore his credibility, it's going to make him, you know, a threat to actually win again, and that creates a whole bunch of problems.
0: Which is why they're having this uh, vetting process, as they call it. And uh, we're told that all of the candidates are going to go through this process. I think Caroline Mulroney already has uh, the others, including Brown, will go through this, and they're going to make some announcement. But it was interesting to see the comments of Vic Fideli, who was the interim leader of the party uh, yesterday. Was he was addressing uh, the the media at Queens Park, and and someone asked him about Brown, and and Fideli, I'll paraphrase it, but essentially said that he did not have confidence in Patrick Brown to meet the standard to be a nominee for the Progressive Conservative Party in Brampt in in the Barry riding, which was pretty telling. And then, of course, they asked him, well, but what about the leadership? And he says, well, I, I, I want to stay neutral on that. Well, you just stabbed the guy in the back, and now s- you say you want to stay neutral. Uh, and therein lies the problem. What they're going to say today, from what I understand, Christo, is not whether or not he's allowed to run in in the leadership, but whether or not they'd even allow him to, to, to run as a candidate. And in other words, if, even if he were to win the leadership, and that's a bit of a stretch, I suppose, at this stage – if nobody signs his nomination papers, he can't sit in the caucus. He can't get a seat.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, with, with politics, you know, there's the parties all to varying degrees say they, you know, they support local riding associations, but they all, again, to varying degrees, have mechanisms that allow them ultimately to say no to candidates, you know, candidates with controversial pasts or with views that might be out of line with the party doctrine. Um you know they have the right to say you know these aren't these are kind of you know in a sense at least somewhat private organizations they can say look we don't want to associate with you and even at the level of leadership you know some people may not get vetted for to run for party leadership and that's just a reality and I think with Patrick Brown that raises a very interesting point that he might well you know not be banned from bar, running from the the leadership but. But, you know, if, if getting his nomination papers signed is, is a whole other issue entirely. My my view is that if they weren't going to let him run and bury, I would find it very weird that they wouldn't even allow him to contest the leadership more generally.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a back doorway of, of of knocking him out of the leadership race. If they say, go ahead and do that, but no matter what, even if you win that leadership, uh, we're not signing your papers, so you will never be a member of the PC caucus.
2: Yeah, 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 certainly. I mean, my view is that... You know, they, we might still see if Vic Fideli said he's remained neutral, but there could be a committee that looks at vetting. And as we, as you said, it's not completed yet. Patrick Brown might be told he's not allowed to run for neither this nor his riding nomination. We we, we haven't seen that
0: yet. The the problem, I suppose, as far as the PCs are concerned here, though, Christo, is if you start believing some of the polling that we've seen, and there seems to be a consistent message through that, is it doesn't matter who the leader is, they're probably going to win the election in June. So that's that's well, that's why I don't think Brown or anybody else, for that matter, is going to drop out of this thing because they figure whoever wins this is going to be the premier in waiting.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, politics is uh, is a very volatile game. So certainly, you would never want to say that you know the the person's gonna uh, that you know that's leading now is going to win in, in even in a hundred days. But you're right in saying that the stakes are a lot higher and people can can kind of sniff that that historic opportunity to kind of jump, um, from relative political obscurity, uh, into, you know, the most powerful provincial office in the country. And I think that's a big deal. Um, you know, Patrick Brown is very controversial and I think that would hurt them. And I think that, you know, there's not really a lot to be lost in dis- in, in, in discarding him. You know, there are certain types that feel that, you know, feminism has gone too far type thing. And, and that Patrick Brown is being railroaded by the PC elite. But those kind of people are already going to vote conservative. They're going to grin and bear it. Um, and so I don't think they lose anything by taking out Patrick Brown, but by keeping Brown, by allowing him to recontest the nomination, they might lose a lot of moderates who maybe vote for the conservatives on economic issues, but frankly don't like the fact that their leader would be a, you know, an alleged uh, alleged you know, person who's done, you know, sexually inappropriate things to young women. And I think that's that's the pitfall here.
0: Christo, you've been analyzing politics and politicians for a long time. Let, let me ask you something. I mean, we're making a big deal of this, and we're talking about this, and you can't pick up a newspaper or listen to a newscast or a show like this anywhere in the province right now where somebody's not talking about Brown and, and, the, and the Tories and what may happen here. But does this resonate with the average voter in Ontario? I mean, I you know, they're aware of the fact, I'm sure there's an election coming up, but is this just a little too much inside baseball stuff that they don't really care about one way or another?
2: You know, I think certainly with almost any political issue, you know, the, the Ottawa bubble or, in the, you know, the Queen's Park bubble provincially, you know, always sees things a little bit differently than, than the rest of the province. And I think even in this case that's true. But, you know, this is, this is visceral in a way that a lot of other things issue. This isn't Senate reform. This isn't even tax reform. This isn't even the sex ed program. It is kind of like the sex ed program in that people kind of feel it's addressing, you know, issues of sex, issues of equality, issues of, of morality. And I think that does speak to a lot of people. It might not be 100% on their radar because, as you said, we're not in election mode quite yet for the regular person. Signs aren't up yet and all, and all of that. But I really do feel that, you know, Patrick Brown it would, would be really damaging to the conservatives to a lot of moderate voters those kind of voters that maybe aren't their base but that they need to form a government be in a major- majority or a minority you know many women who might consider voting for them i don't think would be very supportive of a patrick brown type and i think in that sense they have to be very careful here you know in terms of of uh, you know if they allow him back in the race and he wins you know the attack ads are going to be are going to be un- are going to be unrelenting, and I think that uh, you know on issues like sex and morality, I think people do pay attention because it's just it's, it's something everyone kind of gets or at least feel they get.
0: I, I rarely ask you when you join us on the program here to actually make a prediction, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to put this, the spotlight on you for a second here because I get the sense when you listen to some of the Tory leadership here in Ontario. Uh, I'll channel you know Thomas Beckett and King Henry the Second for a second, and you will know, somebody rid me of this meddlesome priest uh, paraphrase it say, rid, rid me of this meddlesome former leader. Uh, they'd like to see him gone, but they're going to take a hit in, in in public relations no matter what. If they tell him today you can't get your nomination papers, uh, a lot of people are going to say, well, you're 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 scuttling the democratic process. Yet, if they let him stay in this race, uh, he's going to be a factor, even if he doesn't win this, all through this thing, and he's going to be a pain in the side to an awful lot of people. Which way do they go here?
2: You know, which way do they go? My view is that they probably, geez, I don't know. The way they should go, in my view, is they should uh, tell him, no, he's not allowed to run. That what he's done uh, is an affront to the party's values, and that, yes, democracy is important, but the party also has the responsibility to ensure a safe space for the women within it, and that to ensure that whoever wins, whoever it is, upholds the values of progressive conservatism in Ontario. And that's what they should do. And, yeah, they might take a hit. You know, one hit they might take is from some loyalists, so they might lose some volunteers and some donors, which is very important. But I think what they do is they, they, you know, go out and they reach out to moderates and say, look, the party has moderated itself on social issues. And now we're basically, you know, trying to bring ourselves in line with, say, the liberals and the NDP on the Me Too question. And and we you, we can be trusted to be a, in a sense, a feminist party. Uh, and if that means jettisoning a candidate without him being allowed to run, then that's for the better. And, again, if they do allow him to run, as you know, I think the damages are potentially greater. So that's my, I guess, prediction class, you know, advice.
0: I You know what? I'm I'm on side with you totally on this. Uh, that makes all kinds of sense. I, I think you know they can take the one- or two-day hit from the loyalists. But your, your point from earlier in the conversation is well taken, that th- those people are probably going to vote conservative eventually anyway. They may be a little angry, but they're still going to vote conservative. Uh, but if we've learned one thing over the last couple of uh, weeks here, Christo, it's uh, expect the unexpected. So who really knows, right?
2: Yeah, I no, you know 100%. Right now it's very volatile. You know, Kathleen Wynne is still unpopular. Uh, you know, you, anything can happen. Andrea Horwath could very well make the case for some, some conservatives who maybe don't always support NDP economic policy and say, look, you know, there is a change that's needed, and the reality is Kathleen Wynne's not going to be that change. And the conservatives maybe could have been, but, you know, who knows right now? And Andrea Horwath could say, look, I'm the only one that's an alternative to Wynne that's ready to lead right now. So anything can really happen. We just don't know. Any one of these parties could form a government in my view.
0: Christo Avelis, uh, thanks as always, Christo. Great talking with you again today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML.
0: I want to talk to you about uh, something that should be of immediate concern to everybody in this city because it's going to have an impact on our economy, and that, of course, are the negotiations between Canada and the United States when it comes to trade. We already know about the NAFTA negotiations, and that's not going as well as we had hoped it would be. And we also know that uh, the guy in the White House is ranting from time to time about things he'd like to see happen. And uh, he made some mention the other day about uh, imposing huge tariffs on incoming goods to the United States. And uh, now, uh, my understanding is that this is something that the Congress, I guess, would have to do. I guess the president can't actually do this. But now there are some legs to this. Uh, because it looks now as if uh, some other folks in the United States are thinking, hey, this idea of uh, substantial tariffs uh, on incoming goods is actually a pretty good idea. And the president's actually reached uh, uh, some information from uh, other sources right now that might validate this, Uh, tariff taxes, uh, that uh, could have a a direct impact on what's going to happen with the Canadian steel industry. And, of course, that's going to impact Hamilton. Well, the uh, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce has responded to that. Kenan Lewis, the president and CEO of the chamber, joins us on the Bill Kelly show to talk about this hey Keenan how are you doing today
3: good morning Bill I'm doing great I'd rather be talking football though
0: well so would <laughs> I frankly but uh, you know we are steel town uh, I, I, we've got adma- advanced manufacturing and, and a changing economy as you and I have talked about for many many years but steel still plays a big part of this and uh, what what they're talking about in Washington right now uh, is is not good news for what could happen here. No, it's not good
3: news. But on top of all kinds of other um, bad news stories, you know, as, as you mentioned, we've got uh, NAFTA is hanging in the balance. Uh, there's a whole lot of uh, buy american protectionism that's going on as well that uh, we need to respond to, and the Premier actually responded yesterday. But there's also, on top of all the other things that uh, this uh, presidency is trying to do to upend the world order, um uh this is a section 232 review so it's different than those other issues but of course completely uh wrapped up into uh, uh in- intertwined with all of those issues as well but uh, essentially what he's asked is for the department of commerce to provide recommendations on whether the steel industry is a matter of national importance and uh, uh economic security and if so and if it is under threat um, what are the options to uh, protect that uh, steel industry, that domestic uh, steel capacity? And so the, the Department of Commerce returned a report uh, to Trump uh, a couple weeks ago. He has until uh, April or so to respond, and they've recommended uh, three uh uh, courses of action or, or three different courses of action that uh, the president can choose from and all of them are impactful to Canada some more so than others but uh, certainly something that uh, again among all the other things that are going on this is probably the one issue that's causing the most consternation within uh, the local steel industry.
0: And as you mentioned in, in in the letter, and this is a very important element to this, uh, this can happen. I mean when, when Trump started talking like this a few days ago Most people dismissed that and said, well, the president can't impose taxes. That's up to the Congress, and they don't have that authority. Well, apparently he does. He does. Uh, And this is not new to Trump, but this is actually one of these little-known sections of the existing NAFTA agreement. Section 232 uh, says that the, the president of the United States can unilaterally impose tariffs like this. So he's got the hammer if he wants to use it.
3: Yeah, this uh certainly allows the executive to act again uh in uh matters of national security and it's been attempted in the past, um but uh in, in most recently after nine eleven President Bush tried to uh impose tariffs and, and quotas on imported steel and it drove up the price of steel um, and there was so much of a backlash domestically that they uh that they they did not uh, end up imposing taxes so you know are obviously we would say that uh that will likely happen again uh prices will go up because you're disrupting uh, the supply chain in steel um, so domestically this isn't going to have the impact uh that they uh think it will but of course that's not going to prevent them from uh, from acting in a rash way
0: well, and, and there's the difference. I mean, when, when George W. tried to do this, uh, and they did see the market reaction to this, and all of a sudden the advisors went back and said, Mr. President, you got to reconsider this. Uh, they actually did this. But it's clear that this president doesn't listen to his advisors and doesn't seem to really care about the long-term implications of, of the policies. As long as this is putting America first, to use his quotation, he's a happy camper. Well, he's not even listening
3: to the domestic business community, um, other than a couple steel uh big steel industry uh providers who of course um, are seeking protectionism and uh would greatly benefit from this but certainly the the car companies um, would not want to see this. This would be hugely disruptive to uh, their operations. Would cause uh, major disruptions and, and delays uh, in the supply chain. And they don't have the the necessary domestic capacity to be able to meet the needs of the auto industry. Um, the other uh, little known fact is that uh, ArcelorMittal deFasco provides almost all the steel um, for canned goods in the united states and of course uh... prices for uh... for food will go up as a result and there is no domestic uh, capacity for um, that particular product line so it would be hugely disruptive
0: all right now we've already heard the province of ontario respond to this premier win last week suggested and and just actually talked about introducing legislation as late as yesterday uh... to counteract this and now she was talking specifically about new york state but obviously in a much broader sense uh, that would also, I guess, be a reaction to what the uh, the U.S. government might want to do here, uh, but that's getting into a trade war, and, and as we've talked about before, Keenan, when that starts happening, really nobody wins.
3: Yeah, there's no end in sight uh, to retaliatory measures, and so you know it, it does become much more political than um, than fact driven. In uh, that result, and and so certainly we don't wish to uh, ignite a trade war. We we wish to maintain the status quo. Obviously, there are provisions within NAFTA that need to be updated, but um, you know the the best thing to do is to to maintain uh, the current supply chain um, and 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 the the current arrangements with regards to uh, certainly specifically steel. Um, and you know the, the, the issue here is that canada is not the bad actor canada is not the country that um that the united states is is seeking to 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 keep out of um its domestic supply chain it's its actors um, uh, you know, it, primarily in Asia, it's primarily, uh, China that we're concerned about. is It is a, a non market economy. Uh, many of the, the steel companies there are state owned. Obviously, they, they don't have the same labor regulations. They don't have the same environmental regulations. And the steel isn't, uh, as, uh, as high quality as the steel that we produce here in Canada. But obviously, um, you know, being shutting out China is going to have adverse effects. Um, to Canada, and and that's something we're also going to be ha- have to be prepared for because if, if the U.S. closes its borders to uh, Chinese steel or, or non-market economy steel, then that steel could come through to Canada and therefore impacting every single steel shipment from Canada to the U.S. because it's going to receive extra scrutiny.
0: I, I would suggest that it's not a way it could come through. It already is because uh, that's one of the concerns that the, they've already raised with the Chinese government. I mean, the countries they're focusing on right now uh, you're right, Canada's not on the list, Keenan, but uh, Brazil, China, Costa Rica, Egypt, India, Malaysia, uh, Korea, Russia, South Africa, Thailand, Turkey, and Vietnam. And, and you're absolutely right. If, they, if they're going to find barriers here and it's going to be problematic for them to import, and let's face it, none of them are going to pay the tariff, they're simply going to look for places to dump, and Canada's a natural spot for them. It is.
3: And you know, the the good thing is that last year we actually acted on this and um, there were a number of amendments through the budget in twenty seventeen to the Special Import Measures Act, which does provide uh Canada Border Service Agency with the the power to be able to um, to to be able to um, respond to complaints from the domestic steel industry so we uh... as a canadian company we have um, uh... or we know very well that uh... non-market steel is coming into the country we can go to C cvsa and and uh, institute an action that would uh, then impose the right tariff on that steel the problem is though they have the power to be able to do that um, they don 't have the funding to be able to do that, and, and thus far, um, those new provisions haven 't been enacted but obviously that 's something that we 're going to have to step up and and this is even a case where we 're going to have to um Harmonize our regulations even close even more closely with the United States uh, if they act in this way, so that we can guarantee them that non-market steel is not coming through Canada.
0: All right, but Keenan, this is just a variation on the same thing that we've had with the NAFTA negotiations, where it seems that the White House and, and, by extension, of course, the negotiators that get their marching orders from the White House, are not listening to state governments, to local governments, to local chambers of commerce in the United States many of whom are telling uh, the Trump administration, stop this talk about killing NAFTA, because this is going to have a negative impact on our economies. Uh, And I I guess to look at what's going on now with the steel industry, the potential with the tariffs that they're talking about imposing here, has there been a conversation with chambers of commerce south of the border uh, to to try to get some some unilateral decisions here and some, some... uh, I guess, conventional thinking that, that might impact the decision before these guys do something? Uh,
3: there has been a huge amount of effort um, from local chambers, from the Canadian Chamber, uh, you know, liaising with the United States Chamber of Commerce. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce does not want to see uh, NAFTA uh, torn up. Um, they don't want the, the, uh, the status quo to be disrupted either and you know and then there's a lot of uh... provincial to to state level le- uh... uh... state level um... uh... talks as well and you know we've done our parts we have a an agreement with the buffalo niagara partnership they advocated in albany against the bi-american um uh... regime that's about to go into force on april first uh... twenty eighteen so despite all of that action despite uh... all of the you know, the the voices that are speaking out against the, the current actions in the White House, um, you know, it's frustrating. Nothing, there. there is uh, no listening going on. And certainly they don't want to let facts get in the way of a really good partisan um, populist uh, line of thinking.
0: But, you know, we're talking specifically about the steel industry and tariffs on the steel industry. But we know that trade wars can spill over and have uh, uh, other effects. And, and maybe the best example of that is what's going on with Alberta and British Columbia right now. That was essentially about Kinder Morgan, and now there's a ban on wines going into Alberta. Uh, there was even talk about banning the BC lines from playing in Alberta and Calgary. This, year. I mean, it, it gets silly after a while, but it, it just shows that uh, you know when it's point and counterpoint, that all of a sudden everything can be affected, and, and, and a tariff system on steel like this. Can have a, a a negative impact on so many other things that are going cross back, and which is why obviously your your partners over in Buffalo and Niagara Falls are cognizant of that because they rely on that that cross border trade. Uh, maybe in Albany they don't get that, but certainly the people that are trying to exist and and thrive and maybe even survive locally in those economies are are saying, wait a second, you've got to listen to us.
3: Yeah. Again, there's there's no end to how you can retaliate. And it will only escalate and only get worse, um, which is why uh, you know I, I applaud the the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, obviously, you know the OCC is not as happy uh, with the premier in in reacting to um, the uh, the New York by American. Um, uh, provisions, they they would not want to see uh, retaliatory measures. But the, you know, the local um, economy here and and many of our members uh, really applaud uh, the premier's actions on this. You know, we can't afford to play nice, uh, even if these are great allies of ours. But what I what I like that the OCC, in reaction to all of this, is actually reaching out to a number of uh, other states. Um, with which we have tightly integrated supply chain uh, networks and is asking them to, uh, to, to tamp down any uh, potential by American um, you know, uh, momentum that's uh, happening within their state. So we're trying to get uh, a hold of this uh, before it, uh, it escalates out of control.
0: Well let me ask you, what's your sense on, on what you've heard so far? Is this something that is going to happen or is this still being negotiated? Because you just outlined the three options uh, and none of them are good uh, from, from the, the Hamilton standpoint. I mean, 24% on all steel imports from all the countries. That includes Canada. Uh, the other, as you mentioned, was 53% on steel products from those 12 countries I already mm-hmm. outlined. But then there's also a quota byproduct on steel imports from the other countries, and that's going to include Canada. Or the quota on all steel products of up to 63% of their exports to the United States. I mean, I mean they're, they're going to stick it to us no matter what here if they go down this road yeah no
3: matter what even if the the targeted countries are targeted with the fifty three percent tariff um, they will prevent uh... companies like arsenal mill defasco from growing their market share uh... in the united states because they will cap um, the quota to 2017 exports. So it it is uh, that's the best outcome. Uh, well, the best outcome is to do nothing, but I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, so among the three options laid out by the Department of Commerce, the best outcome uh, still does. Uh, you know, place a burden on ArcelorMittal de Fasco. Of course, uh, we have other, uh, agreements now that have given us access to other markets, uh, with TPP and, uh, with CETA, uh, to, to Europe. So, you know, that's just the, what we have to tell all of our, um, our exporting companies is that it's time to diversify because, you know, we can't be so reliant on one market because, you know, right now it's causing a, a lot of heartache.
0: Well, I mean, I can talk to some of the companies that are doing business in the United States. And uh, one of them, well, the Walters Group here in Hamilton, I know you're familiar with their work. And yeah. they're an international company that do some incredible things. But a lot of their work is done down in the States. And, and you've got to figure if they're going to start building barriers like this, that's going to be prohibitive for companies like that, not just here, but, of course, with the projects they're doing down in, in, in other parts of the country and specifically down in the States. And, and you, you've got to wonder if these guys are cognizant of the implications of what they're suggesting.
3: Well, I, you know, this is one of the, the effects that it's having. A, a lot of local companies have bought operations in the U.S. or have moved part of their operations into the U.S. so that they can ostensibly be treated as a U.S. company. And there maybe jobs are being created uh, domestically within, within the U.S. So, you know, maybe it is having the intended effect, but uh, obviously, you know, there's no care at all as to uh, the impact it's having in communities like ours.
0: Uh, what's uh, what's the impact now? You've you sent the letter. Uh, do you expect to hear back from them? Well, what
3: we're doing is we're mobilizing our uh, chamber networks. We just had a call with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce on uh, this issue and uh, NAFTA and, and Buy American and other issues. We're going to be going to Queen's Park on uh, Monday, so this will be a huge topic of conversation. We have uh, talks with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and its network as well. So you know we're we're just getting prepared for um, the uh, eventual announcement uh, that will be coming from the White House uh, by April for sure.
0: Well, uh, we'll stay in touch, uh, Keenan, and see how this rolls out, and hopefully, saner heads will prevail. It maybe, was maybe, first time for everything, I suppose.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for highlighting this uh, this issue.
0: Keenan Lewis, uh, uh, Lewis, president and CEO of course of the chamber. Thanks again, Keenan. Uh, and from Alexis on uh, email at b.kelly900chml.com says, "Do that. Realize the inflation in the states will be crippling for everybody's economy. Absolutely. Well, you know that. I know that. Apparently, Donald Trump doesn't."
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.